Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today for a discussion of a book I really love. This is Raz Hin Morris's book, Measuring Shadows, Kepler's Optics of Invisibility, and it came out with Penn State University Press in 2016. Now, what you'll hear us talk about in the conversation to come um, is a whole lot of stuff about Kepler's optics. Now, you may hear that phrase and think, why should I be interested in Kepler's optics, right? I'm not interested in the history of optics. However, um, what you will realize over the course of the conversation and over the course of the book is that what Roz does is he makes a history of Kepler's optics also about not just the science of optics and astronomy, although it's in part about that, it's about theories of melancholy. It's about instruments. It's about how it is that we look out at things that we can't directly see and learn about the world um, through the use of instruments, through the use of mathematics, through ideas about what it is to see and how the connection between ourselves as visual beings, visual knowing beings, and a world that we don't always have immediate visual access to happens. Um, It's about ideas of the Trinity. It's about Shakespeare. It's about painting. It's about jokes. It's about nothing. Um, And you'll hear, if you make it to the end of the conversation, us talk about the importance importance of nothing. Um, So stay tuned for that and make it to the end, because for me, that's one of the really fascinating things about this conversation. Okay, um, so with that in mind, I will leave you to it. And I'll just say um, one of the really adorable things about this conversation was that Raz's dogs were so excited. Um, And so you'll hear his doggies barking occasionally. um, And I I just love that. I love when we can talk with our pets um, about these books as well as talking with each other. Okay, so with that, enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for listening and for the support of the channel that that constitutes, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Raz Khan Morris about his new book, Measuring Shadows, Kepler's Optics of Invisibility. Welcome to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast, Roz. Thank you so much, both for writing a really fascinating book about Kepler um, and also Kepler's relationship to lots of other things that we'll talk about, and also for negotiating the time difference and making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me, and uh, I'm really excited to be on this podcast and talk about Kepler. (laughs) So let's start with the traditional question of the channel, Raz. How did you come to the history of science? What brought you to this as an academic discipline? Uh, well, it was somewhere towards the end of my uh, BA in a seminar on the, the Radical Reformation given by Professor Michael Head in, uh, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem that I came across this book uh, called The Radical Enlightenment. Uh, I think it was, it's by Margaret Jacobs. And the first two chapters talk about science, basically the scientific revolution of the 17th century. And I got so excited about the idea that an historian can say something about science, that science is part of history, that it's part of cultural processes of political struggles, that I decided this is what I uh, want to do to um, read science historically, especially the mathematical sciences, where I found the greatest tension between my humanistic training and the kind of mathematical, physical theories, uh, and the idea that you can actually relate to them historically Mm -hmm. was something that surprised me and attracted me. 
So the book that we're talking about today traces a significant and um, what it calls a startling notion through the work of Johannes Kepler. And this is in the words of the book. In order to account for real physical motions, one has to investigate artificially produced shadows and reflections. And the book looks at the crucial ways that changing notions of visibility set Kepler's optics up as what it calls the cornerstone to his radical Copernican astronomy. Okay, so Roz, what brought you to this particular topic, um, to write a book on Kepler's optics specifically, and and in particular to focus on this aspect of his work? Well, I'll make a long story short. Um, At first, I... I started with uh, the trying to locate some kind of a relationship between more popular manual culture and high uh, mathematical uh, pursuits. So I looked at uh, Renaissance perspective, which led me on the one hand backwards towards the Middle Ages to look at the at medieval optics, and then it it kind of led me forward to see the end of the story as I kind of gathered from such like as David Lindbergh and others who wrote about the history of medieval optics and that to look at Kepler as the end of the story. But as I started to investigate his writings, I was surprised of two things. First, that he was funny, <laughs> that he had lots of humor and, I mean, German jokes, but... Still, uh, there was a smile. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was how much, how different he, he, his optic is from what Lindbergh and others, Strakers and others were describing in the 70s and 80s of the last gen- century. Uh, and trying to figure that out, uh, what what is this optics? Why does it somebody writes a revolutionary book in optics in 1604. Basically, that was the question that sort of began the the process of this uh, book. So let's actually, um, that's a great point to start from in terms of actually getting into the book itself. You mentioned um, some of the most significant differences between what others had done in their work on Kepler, um, and you mentioned Lindbergh, but also Straker. So I want to shout out to Straker, who is a, a UBC, um, who uh, was a UBC colleague. So yay, UBC and Arts One and STS, um, which he was involved in. But um, but moving on from that, um, one of the things that you talk about in the introduction is precisely the way that um, your treatment of Kepler really challenges or differs from prevailing historiography about Kepler. So let's start there. What are some of the most significant of these differences that you noticed between how Kepler had been treated historiographically and what you saw um, in your treatment of the text? I think that the the main, uh, the main point is that to take Kepler out of the continuity rupture debate, whether he's a revolutionary or not, because I think this kind of misses the point of what he's he's doing and the kind of challenges he has to face and the sort of answers he's coming up with. Um, Mm -hmm. Because it kind of, when you talk about him in this context of continuity rupture, you, you either reduce him to a medieval figure, uh, just doing more of the same, the same problems, the same uh, with kind of a, uh, solutions with a twist or something like that. And when you take him as a revolutionary figure, you don't, you kind of dislocate him from his context as if he's not part of the turn of the century ambience of, uh, early stages of Copernicanism and uh, uh, the, the the way mathematics, the kind of struggle he has to make, the kind of compromises he has to make as he uh, come up with the new solutions. With the, because when you say revolution, you kind of assume that it's already 
the assembly already convened and the constitution was already written and there's a revolution. But I think in science, generally, uh, these revolutions take a long time and the constitution is only uh, retrospectively can be uh, gathered. And I think with Kepler, it's very much the same. He's kind of struggling as he trods along. He, and some of the solutions he are half-baked. He tries to make them better. He, he, you can feel it as he uh, in his work. So... I think this is the main thing that I try to kind of to do in relation to the traditional historiography is really to read him in the in his con the, the context that he suggests us to read him. Excellent, and we're going to see. Um, I think as our conversation progresses, that some of that context involves um, engaging with works of Shakespeare, and some of that context involves engaging painting, um, works of kind of visual puns, etc. So there's a lot going on here, um, which I think is really, really fascinating. So Kepler's new optics presented a really significant epistemological challenge to prevailing ideas, as you show here in um, these early stages of the book. He intended, in the words of the book, to allow distant and almost invisible objects to grant knowledge as valid as the observation of things at hand. Right. So this would be a science, as you call it here on page 20, a visual experience of things that are beyond the power of one's eyesight. So it's a really fascinating case study here. Okay. Um, so now as we get into the chapters themselves, one of the points that you make early on in the first chapter is that Kepler's work brought together optics and astronomy. And listeners right now might kind of take for granted that those are kind of naturally related, right, given the history of science that we have right now. But you make the point here that this was not at all an obvious move to bring these together. So maybe this is a good point to start. Can you talk about that a little bit? What was surprising um, and interesting about his effort to bring astronomy and optics together? Well, optics is about visual experience. And one of the things we tend to overlook is that we have no visual experience of the heavens. We see these bright dots on the heavenly canopy and we see maybe the moon or the sun as something more tangible for us uh, for visually. But basically we don't see them. And if we look at the ancient optics or medieval optics, where the size of a body is uh, relative to the size of the angle of sight, mm -hmm. then obviously the angle of sight between our eye and some distant star is almost zero, if not nothing at all. So basically we don't see the stars. So the, there's no way to have an optics of astronomy, astronomical optics as Kepler calls his book. And when you realize this sort of oxymoron in the title of his book, the supplement to Vitello, the optical part of astronomy, you realize that there's some kind of a puzzling move that he's doing, something that is breaking the or transgressing the, the disciplinary borders of uh, ancient and medieval uh, uh, culture. And for listeners who don't know what we mean when we say Vitello, right, we're going to talk about that as well a little bit. Um, Vitello was a medieval philosopher and mathematician. And in the introduction, um, the book makes the point that Vitello here stands in as a kind of metonym of medieval approaches to perspective um, more generally, including interpretations of the work of Alhazen. So that's kind of where we get that title from. Um, so given what you're saying, um, there is a kind of implication that leads us to another really significant part of his work. And you talk a lot about this in the book. In order to develop causal physical accounts of heavenly bodies that were so distant and out of the reach of direct sensory knowledge, right? In the way that you were just talking about, mathematics became crucial for him. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that. Like he's, he's, um, and you make this point early in the book, he's rejecting, um, 
language, uh, kind of um, verbal language is the basis for scientific investigation. And mm. he's turning toward geometry and mathematics as a language for him. So um, can you talk a little bit about that and the significance of that for what's going on here? I think the, as a result of the Copernican, uh, of Copernican astronomy, a direct result is that we cannot trust our eyes because our immediate daily visual experience is of a, a static Earth and of a moving uh, heavens or a moving sun. We see the sun travels uh, along the sky from east to west, and and that's our experience. And Copernican astronomy actually tells us we are wrong. We are living in an, il- an illusionary world, uh, and we need to somehow find uh, a point of view that is extraordinary. In a way, and Kepler is looking for this kind of extraordinary point from which to observe the heaven in the correct way. Uh, and so, again, instead of a sensory experience, sense experience, he suggests uh, an a priori science. He wants his science to be kind of obvious without any need for. Uh, the senses to uh, verify or validate uh, his science. And and the model is obviously mathematics, but then you need some kind of a physical um, presupposition or an axiom from which the mathematics can flow uh, and be deduced. Uh, and this is the where he rejects language because... One option is to do the humanist uh, uh, turn and to look for um, the roots of the the etymology of words and through that to kind of reach to some Adamic essence that was there at the beginning of the world and there there we'll have the essence from which to proceed with our a priori deductions. But as he shows, this doesn't work with optics. The the words we use, like refraction or reflection, don't really describe the behavior of light. And therefore, he comes up with this really fantastic, partly mystical, partly theological uh, uh, image of God as a sphere. And from that idea that the basic uh, figure is a sphere, and that from relationship within a sphere, we, from which we can deduce the world and the behavior of light, from there is kind of, that becomes the axiom the, the, for the a priori science, which is very strange, but it's, but for him, it works. Uh, and and I think the crucial point is that it means that the new science begins with some kind of a very shaky, if not shady, assumption as, as, the, as the first step on the ladder. Mm-hmm. Basically, we kind of, we start climbing the ladder from the second or third uh, stage. Mm-hmm. We have to leap forward haha you said shady assumption also we're talking about shadows oh so funny i'll try not (laughs) i I see what you did there um so one of the things that you're talking about um is actually another significant part of what's going on here um so you talk about describing the behavior of light and in fact one of the things that you show early in the book is that kepler's work involves a kind of reorientation from vision to light as the object of study. Mm -hmm. Um, So you uh, describe here um, the way in which the study of the refraction of light becomes crucial to his optics and the study of vision itself is secondary. Why is Mm -hmm. that such a big deal for the context that he's working in? Ancient uh, optics and medieval uh, optics, both of them concentrated on vision and sight. That was the main 
optical puzzle and the thing to the subject of of discussion how do we see uh, and to explain certain visual distortions to explain away uh, distortions and uh, how to operate mirrors and other uh, image producing uh, uh, tools uh, and light uh, was only secondary it was the paradigm of radiation but it wasn't it didn't explain sight as such sight was explained with something they called visual rays something that is um, flowing out of uh, the visual sphere from the visual uh, from the object that we see uh, visual rays are flowing into our eyes uh, stamping the the shape of the object on our uh, crystalline humor or whatever other part of the eye was uh, deemed as uh, the sensory part. Uh, and this was needed to um, for the confidence uh, we should have oh let's put it uh, more clearly we need these visual rays to create a direct contact between our eyes and the object we see mm-hmm. and therefore this direct contact also supplies with uh, uh, epistemological certitude mm-hmm. and that's what we want to gain through our optical optical investigation to explain away distortions and to uh, uh, keep in our hands epistemological certitude that what we see is what is mm-hmm. uh, that we do really uh, visually experience the world correctly and the moment that Kepler severed this uh, direct contact, the moment he says, no, there, are, there is the, uh, the object, the visual object, there is the eye, and between them light travels as a mediator, we lose uh, this direct uh, contact. Mm-hmm. Instead, we gain the ability to say that we see the same in the same way the same mediation operates whether we see the stars through a camera obscura or the planets through a camera obscura or whether we see uh, the object we are surrounded uh, by so we gain this uh, this option to talk about astronomy astronomy with the same certitude that we talk about the uh, the glass on my table or the books uh, on my shelf so you mentioned the camera obscura, um, and that's great because that brings us into the next thing I wanted to ask you to talk about. Um, so in light of what you're saying, pun totally intended, um, so I'm going to pause so everyone can appreciate the pun that I just made, right? Um, in light of what you're just saying, shadows and their measurement become really important to the story. And this plays out really, really interestingly here in the first chapter, because you relate this to actually what's happening in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream and Shakespearean mm-hmm. theater more broadly. And this is actually one of the things about the book that I really love um, is that it brings early modern optics together with painting and literature and kind of humanistic exploration and production more generally in a way that I, I find personally really exciting. Okay, so Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, but also just Shakespeare um, and Shakespearean theater more broadly. How does um, Shakespearean theater relate to Kepler's notion of the camera obscura as, and here in the words of the book, um, as a location for revealing truth through the observation of shadows. So here we have Shakespeare, Camera Obscura, Shadows, Truth. What's the connection here, Raz? Can you talk to us about that? I think the, connect, the, the point I try to make is that there's this sort of anxiety about visual perception that haunts uh, late 16th century European culture in general. And we can sense this anxiety in a play like Midsummer's Night Dream, where uh, 
were basically the the two contenders for uh, Hermione's uh, hand. You cannot differentiate between them, between uh, Lysander and Demetrius. There are there's no external uh, quality that differentiate between them. They're both from the same, they have the same status, both of them are fine gentlemen. It's only the judgment of the eye of Hermione and her father that is dif- deferred about them. Mm-hmm. So, and I think this is the, 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 the trajectory also for the scientific endeavor of Kepler and others. How can we gain truth or how can we discover the truth in a world where visual perception cannot judge anymore correctly about the difference between things. And what Shakespeare is doing is kind of lead us through a world of shadows of, uh, as the bookend and Park talks about the shadows on the stage through this sort of shadowy uh, uh, events of dreamy events uh, illusionary but at the same time true and he kind of takes us through it to the conclusion that truth is no longer solely on uh, um, in the in our senses but it's something that we have to kind of collectively form maybe also through instruments through something that actually uh, distort reality like the forest in the Shakespeare's play and and kind of truth is now uh, no longer a personal experience but mediated and socially constructed experience and I think Kepler would f- resonates with this uh, with this uh, epistemological uh, move that Shakespeare is doing. Fabulous! Thank you so much. Okay, so here we have we're only on chapter one, so I'm going to make a kind of more rapid clip through um, and just kind of summarize where we are so far. So in chapter two. Um, we have kind of a, um, a really in-depth recap of some of the things that we've been talking about. And I'm just going to kind of lay this out for listeners um, before we move on, right? You describe the way Kepler's astronomy, in the words of the book, bridged the gap between observer and heavenly appearances in three moves. And we've actually talked about these moves briefly already. First, light is defined as a mathematical body. So we've talked about the significance of light for him. Um, and the significance of mathematics. Second, instruments of observation are manipulated mathematically to achieve exact representation of distant and almost invisible heavenly occurrences. Um, And we've talked a little bit just now about the role of the camera obscura as a kind of instrument. And you talk here about the epistemological status of the camera obscura and other instruments of vision. And third, there's a new language for scientific observation that's developed by reformulating the relationship between mathematics and phenomena. We've also talked about that um, and the significance of geometry specifically um, in doing this. And this chapter also, just to kind of pick up from something you've already said about, you know, the kind of God as a sphere, um, this chapter talks about the way he understood the geometrical components of point, straight line, curve, and sphere as representations of the Trinity. So there's a really, really interesting discussion here in chapter two. And I just want to kind of name this for listeners, right, before we move on. Um, So chapter three, very briefly, Um, does uh, an important kind of work in terms of situating this within a larger context of Aristotelian theories. And because this is such, um, I think, uh, a really strong concern right now, at least in, in, um, from my perspective on the history of science and the kinds of stuff that I read and the people that I talk to, there's a lot of discussion, right, of kind of revisioning the role of Aristotle and Aristotelian theories for how we understand um, early modern science right now. And so I want to just make sure we even briefly um, touch on this to give listeners a sense of um, just kind of moments of a much larger discussion that's happening here in Chapter 3. 
Okay. So here um, you um, again show us ways that Kepler's proposing this new scientific language based, as you've already talked about, right, not on linguistic analysis, but instead on geometrical figures. Now, one of the reasons that's particularly important in this context is that um, medieval Aristotelians and Renaissance humanists had based right, a lot of what they were doing on linguistic analysis. And so in that way, and also in other ways, Kepler is importantly offering an alternative to Aristotelian theories. So Raz, can you say a little bit about, for you, what are some of the most important ways that that's happening? What are some of the most important aspects of Aristotelian theories that Kepler is taking on? Um, just to give listeners a sense of even just kind of moments of what's going on here. Well, as I, I think I said it uh, already, but I'll kind of try to capture it as a critique of Aristotelian uh, uh, psychology, basically. Mm-hmm. Um I think what the Aristotelian psychology assumes is a sort of a continuum between the external world and our uh, mental concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I see a tree outside, the tree sends through the transparent air its image uh, or something, and Aristotle is clever enough to, not to define it. But he sends something which is color and kind of a shape that, uh, uh, like a signet ring, stamp its form on the wax of the eye, and from there it kind of proceeds through uh, uh, the imagination towards our intelligence, where we can form a concept of a tree. And. Kepler rejects this continuum because uh, it uh, because and then the the word tree the concept tree is an an exact uh, replication or kind of bring this idea of a tree this notion of a tree the image of a tree to our mind whenever we think the word tree mm-hmm. and Kepler rejects this. Uh, this notion because he wants it to be first and foremost mathematically valid and secondly because he needs it for his astronomy. And this sort of idea that we kind of have a direct contact with objects uh, is not uh, possible with uh, with uh, astronomical uh, phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what he suggests instead is light the motion of light creates, or we can trace this motion as mathematical object. And mathematical objects like, uh, mathematical entities like a line or a dot uh, or a sphere is not something that is out there and from which we can abstract uh, a line or a point or a sphere but it's something that is created through the motion of disparate objects. My hand, when I trace a line, my hand moves, and the line is actually an embodiment of this motion, or the motion of light that that moves in an instant from one place to another, and the line is actually a configuration of that motion. And this creates a completely different relationship between um, mental uh, processes and the external world. It is no longer something, the mathematics is no longer something that we abstract from our experience, but the mathematics that is embedded in our mind by God, that's why we resemble God, uh, we are in the image of God, the mathematics that is embedded in our mind is we recognize it in the motion of the external world. And that's some create a completely different uh, way to talk about things. Mm-hmm. The line is no longer similar or a copy of a physical line. It is now a, an abstract concept that we recognize it in, uh, in the motion of the world. Yeah. And that kind of brings physics and mathematics together as well. 
the other point is really the rejection of language as an embodiment of meaning. Again, this sort of Adamic mm-hmm. uh, language that captured the essence of reality. And, ju- and this is very similar again to Shakespeare's uh, Midsummer's Night Dream, where they actually ridicule uh, the this sort of inter- linguistic interpretation. I am a moon, I'm carrying a lamp, look at me, I'm a moon, I'm this sort of... Uh, in the same way, Kepler kind of rejects this sort of uh, literary, humanistic uh, idea that through language we can access reality. Because And there's the, this little uh, um, demonstration he's making of the working of the camera obscura where he takes a book, he takes a book and he uh, um, pulls strings from the corners of the book to create the image on the floor and then kind of get a picture of how a light source, the rays from a light, so- light source traces images on the screen of the camera obscura. And that's exactly what he's doing. The book is no longer there to be read. It becomes a part of a mathematical, physical demonstration. And not as a, something to read, but something to uh, uh, basically to just an object. Awesome. And I think there's something there that kind of invert the meaning of the book and of book reading. I love that. Thank you so much. And that actually really nicely, again, kind of leads us into what I wanted to ask you about next. Um, so it's not just... Shakespearean theater um, and sort of theater more generally that you relate to Kepler's optics. We also here in chapter four consider Kepler's optics in relation to theories of painting, Renaissance theories of painting. Um, So, and you describe here the ways in which Alberti applies geometrical elements to his explanation of sight and talk about this approach that you're bringing here um, in terms of, and again, in light of broader historiographical approaches to understanding Renaissance painting here. So you say here that this approach challenges an attempt to, in the words of the book, portray the Renaissance technique of perspective painting as the missing link between achievements of medieval speculation about nature on the one hand and the new science of the 17th century, right? Um, so can, in terms of, you know, just kind of to give listeners a sense of the way that you are using this example of Keplerian optics to speak to, you know, how we understand the history of Renaissance painting and perspective specifically more broadly, um, can you talk about what you think are some of the most significant historiographical contributions, um, you know, along these lines that Kepler's optics and that your study mm-hmm. of Kepler's optics specifically um, is making here? I think, again, I think it's the continuing the my line with Kepler, also with uh, Renaissance perspective, is to read it in its own context, not as a harbinger of new development and not as something that is evolved out of medieval uh, practices, but something that uh, uh, I think, especially for Alberti, was... Uh, was a technique that was it with which he tried to confront the challenges and anxieties of his own culture, and through it, you can feel the, this sort of tensions that he is addressing with uh, a theory of perspective. And the main thing is this: the the this gap, this this tension that is that Alberti senses between some kind of an ideal mathematically proportioned uh, beauty and the world of the Italian city of uh, 15th century Florence or Rome with the uh, schemes and conspiracies and the corruption uh, and the attempt to fashion art into something that can either solve this tension or uh, somehow... uh, uh, lead it to a different realm that is beyond uh, 
um, almost save us from this uh, wretched uh, material reality in which we humans find themselves. Um, and there's a, 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 an aspiration in Alberti to somehow capture again something that is something that is invisible, this invisible beauty to sort of reduce it reduce it to a to a, a, a material uh, media into painting. So we can look at the painting and see the beyond. You can see divine proportion in some sort of a, a painterly depiction. And, but also this uh, effort, the anxiety is still persistent, persisting because this tension is not solved. The, the tension between the ideal, uh, invisible, divine realm of proportion and our material world is still there all the time. And you can feel it in uh, later uh, struggles like with uh, Cusanus, uh, Nicolas Cusanus uh, on the one hand or Leonardo da Vinci on the other hand, the way they kind of... Uh, at the end, despair in front of this constant gap between uh, divine beauty and uh, earthly wretchedness. And what Kepler is doing is to transform the whole question, turn it on its head, uh, and by that kind of cutting the Gordian knot uh, by transforming physics into mathematics. Um, and therefore into a something that is proportioned and separating it from the world of politics. And, uh, mm-hmm. Great. So you talked briefly before about the fact that Kepler's also funny, right? And this is one of the things that brought you to him. Um, and this, I think, also really nicely brings us to the next part of the book. Um, so chapter five looks at allegories and jokes and emblems, um, and it looks at the relationship between what Kepler is doing and the work of at least a couple of other people. One mm-hmm. of them um, is um, Giuseppe Archimboldo, right? Um, and you look at the kind of significance of allegories and jokes. And for um, listeners who don't know who that is, think about the image that you have in your head of the guy's face made of fruit, or in vegetables, right? I think, like, who is that guy that painted that image of, you know, the guy's head and it's made of, like, fruits and vegetables? It's mm-hmm. that guy, right, uh, Archimboldo. Um, so we were talking about the significance of jokes and emblems and allegories, and it's not just um, Archimboldo that you discuss in this chapter, but really interestingly, you also talk about mm-hmm. Robert Flood. Um, and you talk about the alchemical emblems of Robert Flood. So I just want to kind of throw open the question for you because this is such an interesting part of the story for me. What does um, Kepler's optics have to do with the alchemical emblems of Robert Flood? And for you, what's important about um, this comparison or the, this dialogue between the work of the two of them? Well, there's an immediate connection because uh, Kepler in uh, 1617 uh, notices in the book fair in Frankfurt of this really massive, uh, beautifully illustrated volume by Robert Flood. And he somehow uh, began to fear that people might confuse his own ideas of harmonies that he was just completing his own book about the harmony of the world with uh, Robert Flood's idea of uh, harmony. And so he adds uh, quickly to his book um, an appendix where he attacks uh, frontly Robert Flood's uh, project. And then the debate goes on for a few, for a couple of years. And that was the immediate connection that brought Robert Flood to my attention. The, and from another perspective, and uh, less direct, Kepler's optics try to refashion uh, our visual experience, and to refashion our visual experience in a way that uh, uh, that uh, turns uh, it into a. Uh, uh, a solid foundation for scientific truth, let's put it this way. 
whereas the and in this sense, it kind of invert the the alchemical, mystical way of doing jokes. Uh, the serious jokes of uh, late 16th, early 17th century alchemist, where you start with some sort of uh, solid notion of what there is, and as you proceed, the the joke reveals that you have no idea what you're talking about. That's basically what, when you look at the emblems or on Archimboldo's paintings or on Robert Flood's experiments, you start with something that is very concrete, and as you proceed with the joke, you kind of reach to a moment of pure playfulness and incertitude. Whereas Kepler starts the opposite way. You start with a joke, you start with incertitude, you start with something that is completely, uh, doesn't make sense, like the inverted picture on the retina. But the moment you start to analyze it mathematically, you can extract scientific truths out of it. And, uh, uh, and uh, certain, or at least uh, uh, as certain as we can get, uh, uh, out of the mathematics of the joke. So, and this is, I think, a different direction. Like when you look at Kepler's Somnium, his posthumous uh, little treatise about traveling to the moon, it starts with a dream and with a really fantastic, unbelievable meeting with a demon and witches and whatever you want. But as you read the treatise forward and you look at the footnotes, they change the tone from something that is always kind of tongue-in-cheek into something that is very serious, very solid. So at the end of the treatise, you wake up, Kepler wakes up as an astronomer with solid knowledge of lunar astronomy. And this is something that is completely uh, inverted to the way that somebody like Michael Meyer, the alchemist, or Robert Flood uh, are doing their own speculation, where you start with some kind of a concrete experience, and as you break it down, you discover that you know nothing about it, that it can be interpreted in all kind of strange way, and all you need is some sort of a divine illumination that will uh, save you from this confusion. And in fact, in chapter six, you actually describe this treatise, the Somnium, as itself a camera obscura. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that you can see how on the same, play, on the same level that Kepler is anti-humanist and he rejects uh, literary analysis and linguistic analysis as a way f- to knowledge, at the same time is such an excellent humanist and such a really uh, delicate author with, uh, where he builds his little treatises his, or even his scientific description uh, in such a convincing manner that kind of really leads the reader to the to the place he wants you he wants he, the reader to to get at, and and the, as I studied him, I kind of became a true admirer of uh, <laughs> of his uh, writing abilities. And speaking of leading um, the reader to where they want to go, we are also leading the listener toward the end of the book, right? And toward our own conclusion. So the Somnium, um, your discussion of the Somnium is actually happening in the last body chapter of the book. And this is a chapter um, that moves us from jokes to melancholy, among other things. Um, Raz, as we kind of move toward the conclusion of our conversation and we get toward the end of the book, can you talk a little bit about that relationship? I mean, what is, um, what's the relationship between Kepler's theory of vision and notions of melancholy um, as you develop them here? If I read the, the notion of uh, early modern melancholy correctly, and then it has more to do with epistemological uh, matters than with just emotional distress. Um, and 
it is in a way uh, diagnosed as, as a, something that uh, the, the sufferer of melancholy, the melancholic, cannot differentiate between imagination and reality, between his own fantasies and the external uh, physical reality. He tends to confuse them, and then he tends to isolate himself in shadowy places, away from uh, sunlight, and kind of uh, uh, and kind of uh, I, I become addicted to his own fantasies, away from other people. Doesn't want anybody to disturb his fantastic world, and. I think it became in uh, late 16th century kind of a cultural threat or a, a cultural malaise as many people noticed it. Chief among them is Robert Burton himself in the 1620s where he described the world as a whole as melancholy. And uh, I think scientists or mathematicians and naturally philosoph philosophers like Kepler uh, were diagnosed themselves as melancholic, and part of the scientific effort was to, um, as a therapy. And the fascinating thing about Kepler is that in order to cure yourself of himself of melancholy, he projected the melancholy onto the world. The world itself became melancholy, i.e. made of mathematical figures and abstract motions and and therefore, his own experience becomes true. His own, it's not mere imagination. It's not mere mathematical imagination anymore. It has a physical significance. Um, and therefore, he's not mad. And that, I think, is a kind of a very tortured solution. But, uh, but I think it works for him. And then you see that the astronomer himself become almost a prototype of the melancholic persona. persona. He is uh, isolated inside the camera obscura. All that he observes are shadowy uh, reflections and the projections on the screen. And with his own fantastic fantasy, with his own fantasy, he, he brings these shadows into some kind of a, a basically paradoxical picture of reality where the earth moves around the sun. I love that. I love that part of what's happening here in the book. <laughs> um, so, Roz, let's, I think it's probably appropriate for us to end and move to our conclusion with nothing. Um, <laughs> and what I, what I mean by that is that these discussions, right, the discussion of this treatise, the Somnium, the discussion of um, Kepler's astronomer as a kind of melancholy Man, um, all of these discussions come in the context of a chapter that looks at nothing and the significance of nothing for Kepler and for his work. So, Roz, can you bring us to toward our conclusion by talking about nothing um, and by talking <laughs> specifically about the importance of nothing for Kepler? Oh, my favorite subject. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I... I the crucial point here is that early modern science, what we call the scientific revolution, the, it's one of its kind of uh, salient characteristic, but a characteristic that wasn't talked enough in our own historiography, is that nothing, shadows, uh, fantasy, are a cornerstone in order to talk about the world. The uh, mathematical objects or entities are basically nothing. They are abstract. They have no material uh, substance. Uh, the shadows that Kepler, or later on when the telescopes come around in 1610, uh, the reflections and images that are projected through the telescope are all intangible. They are sort of uh, nothings on a, made of uh, of thin air, um, and the fact that these are uh, the 
point from which science proceeds, that this is what we talk about now. We don't talk about tangible objects anymore. We don't talk about uh, sense experience of color and smell and, uh, um, and touch, but we talk about abstract mathematical entities moving uh, in an abstract space. And from this sort of mathematical nothing, we conclude all kind of very important uh, lessons about how the physical world behaved. I think this is this is the um, the amazing thing about what happens in 17th century Western uh, uh, culture, uh, and something that also the 17th century and I think even either try to repress this this idea, trying to pretend as if it's not there, or to somehow come to terms with the idea that, that the, the cornerstone of our worldview is nothing. There's some kind of absence there. Perfect. So, Roz, we're now at the end of our conversation, but of course there's so much more about the book that we could talk about, right? There's a whole lot going on here. Is there anything in particular that we haven't had a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners before we close? Mm. Uh, I think we touched on all the the most important points. Uh, I think one really, maybe another point that needs to be stressed is this changing idea of what is to be curious. And the pre-modern notion of curiosities is is uh, a, a negative uh, aspect to it. To be curious is bad. To ask questions that uh, you're not supposed to ask, to uh, try and understand things that are beyond human understanding, or see or experience things that are beyond the senses, beyond the horizon. And... Um, and this idea was, uh, is captured in the figure of uh, Icarus, uh, both in the emblem, in the tradition of emblems, and also in uh, artistic uh, depiction like uh, Boichel, uh, uh, the fall of Icarus. That one shouldn't venture beyond one, beyond the horizon, mm-hmm. and. And therefore, we cannot really understand astronomy because the planets and the stars are beyond our experience. And we will never be able to fly there, and nobody will come down from the heavens to tell us how it really works. And what Kepler does with the camera obscura, and later Galileo with the telescope, is actually to tell us that we can be curious, and we can dare to know without ever leaving this, uh, this place, this earth, and go to the heavens to see it for ourselves. We can see it for ourselves through shadowy reflections on uh, the camera obscura screen, or through this kind of image refracted through a system of lenses in the telescope. And this is something that is, again, kind of a watershed in Western culture that we not, I think that historians not always uh, manage to uh, discuss in detail. And now that the book is out, and congratulations um, on the book, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Um, uh, it's a big it's question. A big <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there's, there are two kind of interrelated projects that I'm working on. One is uh, the next the second uh, book on optics that Kepler wrote in 1611, uh, called The Optics, where he explains Galileo's telescope. And that what attracts me there and that is, again, the way that you can see Kepler in the process of thinking and rethinking and reworking what he is doing, and the, the way that the telescope challenges uh, challenge his, uh, his 1604 optics. And the way that he needs to, uh, he had to translate the shadows of his 1604 optics into the refractions of the telescope. And that's kind of one thing that kind of attracts me. 
And I want to relate it, and that's the second project, to changing notion of sovereignty uh, in the first two decades of the 17th century, to show that the telescope is not only an astronomical instrument, but also has a political significance. Um, and it kind of allow um, philosophers and mathematicians like Kepler or like Descartes later to envision uh, a different notion of what is to be a sovereign, what is uh, and the, the relationship between the sovereign and and uh, the state and the legitimacy of sovereignty. And it relates to melancholy, to the melancholic prince, to the figure of the melancholic prince on the one hand, and to the idea of science as a, a, a utopian image of the state, of utopian image in the sense that it's a, that it's a community of uh, people debating but always um, but the debate never ends in bloodshed well thank so you great that sounds amazing too so best of luck with those projects um ring me up when those are out and we'll talk <laughs> about those also and thank with you pleasure. Rose. thanks so much thank for you You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and catch us again soon.